Hello and welcome to another episode of Script to Screen Podcast. I'm your host, Mercedes K. Milner, and I've got to start this episode off by apologizing for being one week late on the release. We've been firing on all cylinders this month at Ride or Die with a bunch of projects, and let me tell you, I have never felt so close to burnout. Thank goodness it's coming just in time for our summer break. So for the month of June, I will not be releasing an episode and there is no slated book of the month because people, I am a one woman operation and mama needs a break. However, if you still feel like chugging along on your own this month, feel free. Do not pause your life on my account. (laughs) You can catch past reviews for books of the month from last year over at the WODC blog and see what I think is worthwhile and... There's a plethora of scripts for you to explore on Scriptslug. Or you could take a break too. We all need them from time to time. I would also like to take a moment to say Happy Pride Month! Though I'm not a member of the community, I am an ally, cheerleader, and lifelong student of the LGBTQIA community and want to share the love any way I can. If there are any scripts you highly recommend that you think I absolutely must read, please send your recommendations to me at scriptoscreenpodcast at gmail.com. You know I love to read. <laughs> We'll have a full Pride screening list available for you on the WODC blog to keep the party going all month long, so check it out if you need screening suggestions. Now, without further ado, let's jump into this script. So this month we're covering True Detective Chapter 1, The Long, Bright, Dark, created by Nick Pizzolatto. We're kicking this bad boy off in our usual way, credits, and guess what? We've got another creative by credit. In case you missed it on our Fleabag episode, there are two main ways to qualify for this credit on an original series. A writer writes a format for the series, or a writer receives story by or written by credit on the pilot episode of the series. Written by indicates that the writer or writers are entitled to the story by credit and the screenplay by credit. So the story by credit is anyone who worked on a treatment or outline of the movie, and the screenplay by credit is for writers who physically wrote drafts or scenes included in the final version of the movie. True Detective is an American anthology crime drama television series created by Nick Pizzolatto that premiered on January 12th 2014 on the premium cable network HBO. The first season follows detectives Martin Hart and Rustin Cole as they use their experience from a major murder case from their past to uncover the truth about a present-day reemergence of the crimes. Before we jump into the script, I want to talk to you about a style of storytelling that I've been obsessed with my whole life. Anthology. My love started with a little show that I personally believe has been underrated since its inception called Beyond Belief, Fact or Fiction. Jonathan Frakes was literally one of my first crushes, second only to Wesley Snipes' Blade. In the show, Frakes presents a series of vignettes, some of them based on quote-unquote true events, and some completely fabricated. By the end of the show, viewers compare their guesses as Frakes reveals what was fact and what was fiction. Add in a dash of campiness and an abundance of cheesy puns and you've literally stolen my 
heart. To be honest, if and when I ever become the next female Jordan Peele, my sights are set on this revival. Nudge, nudge, TV and streaming execs. But anyway, I digress. Beyond Belief is just one example of this form of storytelling for the small screen. More recognizable classic examples would be shows like The Twilight Zone, Playhouse 90, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Tales from the Crypt, and The Outer Limits, to name a few. But something big is happening in TV, and has been most noticeably since season one of American Horror Story and Black Mirror. Anthologies are back, baby, and they're getting more interesting. Why now, you wonder? The general consensus appears to be that in the age of peak TV, there's just too much content to commit to. Not only is there seemingly a new streaming series available to binge weekly, but it has never been easier to access any classic must-see 7-plus season-long series. For people that are looking for a small-screen fix but can't fathom dedicating an entire summer to one show, anthology series both episodic and seasonal alike, allow for viewers to gently wade in the shallow end of the entertainment pool, as opposed to being sucked into the endless black hole of binging. Traditionally, the TV anthology series presents a show where each episode has its own contained story. There are no reoccurring characters, set pieces, or plot lines, but usually the overall theme and tone of the show remain throughout to keep the collection cohesive. These have also historically been associated with the horror and sci-fi genres. However, in the modern age of anthology storytelling, things are getting interesting with the expansion of genre focus and the introduction of the seasonal anthology. True Detective falls into this category. In this type of show, a single arc is established with a group of characters for one full season. In the seasons to follow, completely unconnected characters and arcs are presented. The through-line from season to season is the show's central theme or question. According to IMDb, in the case of True Detective, it is a seasonal anthology series in which police investigations unearth the personal and professional secrets of those involved, both within and outside the law. So why should you be excited about anthologies? Aside from the fact that they're arguably the coolest way to tell stories! They provide a unique window of opportunity for every type of writer in the industry, no matter the level. There is a unique level of creative freedom and experimentation available to contributing writers of an anthology series that they may not get on a typical sitcom or hour-long series. In the case of a series like True Detective, American Horror Story, or even American Crime Story, Writers have an abundance of opportunity to really connect with the series on a season-by-season basis and get versatile. At the very least, when you earn your stripes in a room but still get dismissed at the end of the season, you can take solace in the fact that it's probably the direction of the next season rather than your lack of genius, because you're amazing and we all know it. As I'm sure you know, this is just one of the many exciting reasons to be a writer right now, emerging or established. There's an abundance of opportunity, people. Go out there and snatch it up. And with that, let's get into the script, beginning with the page one breakdown. Title credits, fade in. Interior interrogation room day. 
Obanon Martin Hart staring directly at us, seated at a table. He's 56, tall, broad. He has thick gray hair, close-cropped, a hard face. He wears a well-made suit, and there's a kind of physical intensity in his bearing. He simmers. Cigarette burns and gouges pock the table's linoleum surface. And behind Hart is only a green plaster wall, empty except for its upper right side, in which half a bulletin board is in frame, and on it, half of a wanted poster can be seen. As Martin stares at us, words are typed into the bottom of the screen, courier typeface, to the sound of keys punching. Chiron, Arkansas State Police, CID Company D. Statement of Hart, Martin, Eric. Present, Sergeant Thomas F. Papania, Sergeant Maynard Gilbo. May, 2010. What I think. You know, they called him the banker for a while. Department opened up some new positions in CID that year. Cocaine was on the rise, and meth was getting big. So I partnered up. A beat. Then, he seems to speak as if in response to a question. Seemed a little raw-boned to me. A little edgy. Finally get him over for dinner, around the time of our first female 419. The Pine Angel in Benton County. That's what you all really want to talk about, right? Dorlang? Another beat, as he seems to listen. Right off the bat, we can tell that this is going to be a very stylized show. This writer knows exactly what he wants the audience to see, and being that this writer is the creator, we can assume his vision will come to life just so. Something unique here that I want you to note for structural purposes is the type words described at the bottom of the screen. This is not the first show to implement something like this, but this is the first time I've come across it on the page. Definitely steelworthy friends. Note it. I really love the way we're introduced to Martin Hart. Typically, writers are encouraged to stray away from character descriptions that are too physical because in doing so, you're kind of stepping on the toes of a casting director, and you don't want to rely on descriptive elements like that as gospel because there may be someone perfect for the role outside of that fine-tuned image in your brain. However, I want to point out that I think a better way to interpret this is to only add physical descriptors that clue us into who the character is. From Martin's description, we can deduce that he's a very stark individual, maybe even military-like. He's orderly and serious. Definitely not a joker. All this from physical descriptors. Take note. The dialogue really helps to reiterate the tone of the show. This is going to be a procedural crime drama from the perspective of the detectives that worked the case. We, as an audience, may not know what a female 419 is, but we respect the authenticity and believability of the case we're about to follow, and the voice about to tell us about it. This really speaks to the importance of knowing your world completely. By the bottom of the page, I am all in and want to know who Dora Lang is and what on earth happened to her. Onward to the first act, which I titled, What Makes a True Detective? Immediately from script to screen, there are a ton of major changes that take place, and likely for the better. 
We are now in Louisiana, and the interviewers on the other side of the table have become vocal characters. There's a tremendous amount of growth that I think really elevates the show to its full potential. We're clearly looking at an early draft of the episode, and I think it's important to note just how much change this narrative underwent to give us the true detective we finally get a chance to see. Also, I have to take a moment to touch on the structure we're using for this script. True Detective is considered an hour-long drama series, and shows like this typically follow the five-act structure as opposed to the familiar three-act. I will note that not all one hours use five acts, and this earlier version of the pilot is a great example of implementing only four acts, which still works. But regardless, five-act structure is something important for every writer to know, and in the fully realized show, we do get the full five. Don't worry if you haven't worked with this particular structure before. In a sense, you already have. Every story is inherently three acts because of the need for a beginning, middle, and end. The five-act structure just breaks those three acts down into more acts that will allow the writer to go a bit more in depth. I'll break down the acts as we go, starting with our first act. However, I have another quick note before we dive in. I know, I'm sorry about the notes. <laughs> this structure typically calls for a tag at the beginning of the episode. Similar to the tag we discussed in the Fleabag episode, this is a scene that starts the episode in this case the pilot, off with a short, sweet, and captivating intro that will introduce us to the main characters and either the main theme or a clue of the episode's major conflict. This is completely optional. On the screen, we get a really ominous opening with foliage, fire, and shadows moving in the night. As an audience, we can't exactly place what's happening, but this scene works to establish the overall tone of the show. No rainbows and sunshine here, folks. It's about to get dark. However, in the script, we dive right into the work of the first act, establishing the main characters and the world. Setting and structure go hand in hand in the script because of the jumps in time used to tell this story. We are skipping between 2010, as the present, and 1990 in Arkansas, with narration from the present. Both time periods seem to play off of one another, and I think the major point of this type of structure for this type of story is to clue us in to the characters as we see them in the present as a result of this case from the year 1990. We get a glimpse of the men they were while solving this case, and that will help us understand the men that they will eventually become. The tone here is very dark, serious, and chilling, and this helps to put the audience in the serious viewer mindset. We aren't going to be watching this show to put us in a good mood. The target audience for this show is likely into true crime, procedurals, and hard-boiled detective stories. I want to take a moment to touch on an element of story that might not appear so clear in a show like True Detective. Although this can be perceived as a buddy cop story, there still has to be one clear protagonist. Take note of the fact that though Hart and Cole appear to share equal screen time, Hart's character was introduced first, and that was done with intention, as should everything be done with intention in your script. So let's take a look at Hart first. This is a by-the-book detective that is seasoned and serious in tone, but also down-to-earth and knows how to talk to people. As he describes it on the page, steady. He understands the balance of being a detective. His internal conflict may stem from his struggle to work with a partner he feels so detached from in principle and nature. Can he find a way to work with and ultimately trust Cole as a detective? Then there's Cole. 
This is a detective that is undoubtedly dedicated to the job and knowledgeable, but he's also prickly and doesn't see the need in wasting time with formalities when it comes to his cases. His internal conflict may be his struggle to maintain relationships because of his calculated prickly nature. Our first impression of Cole comes when he shows up late and drunk to a planned dinner with Hart's family. And when Hart agrees to help cover for him, his response of being near tears suggests that this isn't the way he wants to be. It's just the way he continues to be. These two as partners seem to approach things as a yin and yang, but there can be duality if they work together to combine their strengths. Both of their internal conflicts may stem from their relationship as partners. Neither one defines the perceived archetype of a true detective, and yet they are, in fact, detectives. This speaks to what I believe is the central question of the series. What makes a true detective? I mean, I've seen the different types. We all fit categories. The bully, the charmer, the father figure, the man possessed by ungovernable rage, the eyes, the brain, and any of those types can be a good detective. And any of those types can be an incompetent shitheel. It's how they manage the burden of authority, yeah? He thinks a moment, perhaps listens to a comment from his interviewer. It's like a father's authority, a father's burden. It's too much for some people. Same thing I look for when I hire guys for the agency now. You want a certain toughness, but the kind that doesn't veer towards callous, because that's a dangerous road. Aggression. Aggression is necessary. It is. So is compassion. A sense of fairness. Now that we've got a sense of who our main characters are, and the world they're operating in, we can move into their major external conflict revealed in our second act, which I titled, The First Female 419. Our major conflict also works as our inciting incident and comes at the beginning of the case that will define these two characters, the first female 419, or the Pine Angel. Angle on body, depicted as mercifully as possible. A white female, naked, posed kneeling over a large tree root, her hands folded as if in prayer. Head down, a crown of roots and thorns set on her scalp. A pair of large dark wings have been attached to her back. The wings drape over her ribs, their feather tips sunken into a small patch of dirty snow. Cole puts on a pair of latex gloves and looks from the body to the trees around it. Notice a pentagram freshly carved into the pine tree beside the body. Holy God. Cole crouches to examine the wings, angle on his hands shifting the feathers. What's really interesting about this reveal is that the writer intercuts this with scenes from the present that allow the characters to lay out their individual headspaces at the time. When we transition to the screen, this is pretty drastically changed, and the symbolism changes quite a bit as well. We're still given the Satanism element, but this is no longer the case of the Pine Angel. She has antlers instead of wings, and they've replaced the pentagram with the spiral and devil traps strung to the trees, which plays into the change of location from script to screen. Louisiana lore. 
Hart gets a chance to explain his wariness around Cole's approach, and Cole gets a chance to explain said approach. It gives the audience some really cool insight into these two as a pair, and how this case is going to shape their relationship as partners. Their partner dynamic gets a bit trickier once we get to page 15, interior-exterior, CID car, Arkansas Highway, day. In this scene, the characters establish a major point that may drive contention between them, religious beliefs. We have established Hart's character already in Act 1 as a conservative family man, and he drives the point home here by defending Christianity against, well, whatever the hell Cole claims to believe, or rather not believe. Cole sighs. In philosophical terms, I'm what's called a pessimist. In philosophical terms, what's that mean? Means I'm bad at parties. Hart scowls at Cole, prodding him on. Cole continues, reluctant. I think that human consciousness is a tragic evolutionary misstep. I think that nature fabricated an aspect of nature that's forever separated from it. A creature that, by natural law, should not exist. What I love about this scene is that it really solidifies the impending struggle that Hart and Cole are in for. These two not only have completely different detective styles, they also have extremely different spiritual beliefs and ultimately worldviews. This is going to make it that much harder for them to forge a workable relationship because their morals don't align, and that's a core aspect of compatibility between humans. This scene also helps to establish a bit more about the struggle that Cole's character will have in this particular landscape. He's a black sheep and he knows it, but that doesn't make it any easier. He not only lacks the values he needs to align with his peers, he's also lacking their trust and respect. When he is cornered in Casada's office and questioned by Assistant State Attorney Len Slater, it becomes all too clear that his presence has raised some eyebrows, and a lack of transparency surrounding his past makes him a target for doubt and questioning. Why is he really here? What's his angle? This is the type of pressure that spawns clear conflict between Cole and his department, and between Cole and himself. We'll see this play out with his quest for Quaaludes at Jenny O's Tavern. In the transition from script to screen, Cole is still the black sheep of the department, but he comes off even colder and closed off than on the page, almost as if he has a robotic temperament. He is also shrouded in a bit more mystery. With the exception of one fleeting moment, we don't get those glimpses of his daughter or the sparse hints at his past. When it comes to Hart, our glimpse at the major contributing factor for his character struggles comes in the form of his family and the lack of balance between his home life and work life. This is going to affect him deeply because of his conservative Christian family man values. That's who he is at his core, but he's also dedicated to the job. He jumps out the chair, gives Maddie a peck on the cheek, and walks down the hallway, on Maggie, trying not to be hurt, trying to understand by now that it's not personal, that her husband's job changes people. She moves back to the kitchen and begins preparing breakfast. In this version of the script, Hart is divorced at the time of his 2010 interview, but on the screen, he's still wearing his wedding ring. This is an interesting point considering the mild strife set up in the pilot, and the regret he harbors in a later scene. And it's further muddled by the fact that there is definitely another woman in the picture. So, now that we've established the major points of conflict, not only for this episode, but largely for the ongoing series, 
it's time to move into Act 3, which I titled, Please Leave in All Politeness. We open up this act with the chilling autopsy breakdown of the victim, and it really serves to reiterate the seriousness of the crime they are solving. This is a conflict they have to overcome for the sake of justice. But then we get the moment between Cole and Hart just after as they head to the car, and Hart tells Cole to stop being such a fucking weirdo. This helps us remember that despite the common goal between them and the common want between them, these two characters are only going to get into each other's way if they refuse to change. There's a really clarifying moment that the writer gives us during the dinner scene at Hart's house on page 40. Interior bedroom, Hart house, night. This is where we see the major weaknesses of both men come into play. For Cole, we catch a glimpse into his past and what led him to this department in this state working with Hart. For Hart, we get that emotional detachment that doesn't allow him to connect, not just with his partner, but also with the Christian family man he wants to be. He resents that instant openness Cole has with Maggie, not necessarily because she's able to connect, but because he can't. Interior, heart, home, night. At the dinner table, Hart eats in silence while Cole and Maggie talk and the girls laugh with one another. The only dialogue Hart's 2010 VO. She did love to talk. Loved sitting around the table, gabbing. Everybody in her family did. I wasn't much for that. Never had been, but especially when I'm off work. Cole says something and Maggie laughs. One of those consequences of the job, huh? Silence. Monotony. These were the friends of my home. But we're losing sight of what's really going on here and need to get back on track. We need to figure out the next steps to be taken in the Dora Lang case in Act 4, which I titled, Her Name Was Dora Lang. We open up this act with the squad debrief. Here, we're getting not just a sense of the police procedural aspect of the show, we're also getting a feel for the community culture of the department. The general consensus among them is that no one trusts Cole, including his own partner. The writer is establishing even more season-long conflict that we can expect to run into in the episodes to come. For any pilot script, the main goal is to establish a show, but that's broken down into a few different segments. You have tone, characters, story, plot, conflict, and you're not only establishing what's happening in this particular episode, you're setting up the challenges and roadblocks for the entirety of the season. Also tack on the fact that you have to make this first script complete in its own right and not solely a giant question mark. It's hard work, people, but you signed up for this. And the more you practice and read, it'll become easier to approach. Trust me. By the time we get to the interview with the ex, page 47, interior Pine Bluff Penitentiary, afternoon, we haven't had a chance to really get to know Dora beyond her autopsy and former rap sheet. What we get here is a clue into her most recent mindset and activity, and while we don't get too much, we get a lead by way of her admission of being newly saved. The connection? The religious symbolism abounding at her final resting place. If you're watching this show, I know you've got a notebook and a fedora in the vicinity. Write this shit down, detective. But how does this connect to the recounting of the case in 2010? Is everyone just more nostalgic than necessary? 
Have we missed some clues during the episode without realizing? Friends, another major job of the pilot is to leave us with just enough mystery to force us to come back for more. These are the types of questions that you want your audience to be asking as they approach the final pages of your script. We know there's no way to answer everything with less than a page to go, but the writer here is giving us exactly what we need to return. Quick note, the key word here, and really in every one of my episodes, is intention. Please don't string your audience along for the sake of doing so, and then provide them with a half-assed outro, thinking that's going to make them come back. We already know that this case is a big part of the season. We already know that we're likely going to be covering Hart and Cole trying to solve it in the past. What we don't know yet is what the deal is with the present-day interview stuff. And of course, it could just be about two detectives recounting the biggest case of their careers. But that feels a little unnecessary for how much cutting back and forth is happening. This is clearly an integral part of this story. At least integral enough not to make the present day recounting be a bookend. So why? Why don't we let Cole tell us what's really, really going on? Hint, we've got a lot of work ahead of us yet. Interior interrogation room, day. A few minutes later, Cole has a six-pack of paps in front of him, along with his ash mug and cigarettes. He pops a can and guzzles half of it with relish, lights a cigarette. Thank you, boys. Thank you. Now maybe we can get to brass tacks, because I know why I'm here. He sits back a little, drags on the cigarette. It's started again, hasn't it? The killing? Him? And how can that be possible when we got the bastard in 2000? He sips the beer, smokes. How indeed, gentlemen. How indeed. Closing in on Cole's eyes, haunted, intense, as he drinks, hits his cigarette, stares into the camera. Black. The end. Script to Screen is an original production of the Writer Die Chicks and is hosted, researched, and produced by me, Mercedes K. Milner. The original theme music is by Foosh, and other music featured in this episode comes from Zapsplat, Audio Hero, and Music for Video. If you'd like to know what I'll be reading and screening each month, you can visit our website, thewodc.com, to see my curated list of screenplays for the year. You can also check out the Reading on Writing Book Club if you'd like to read the Screenwriting Book of the Month with me as well. Don't forget, I'll be taking a summer break for the month of June, but fret not, listeners, I shall return in July with Bob Peterson and Pete Doctors Up with special guest Angela Thomas. You can also join me in reading the July Book of the Month, Jeffrey Scott's How to Write for Animation. Until then, read something, watch something, and write for your life. 